Amen. If you guys have your Bibles, please open to Matthew. Or Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30 today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, we thank you um, for this life you've given us. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Um, Father, we come before you with worries, concerns, fears. Uh, Lord, we look at the world around us, and uh, it's a a scary place. Um, Lord, we've seen a number of terrorist attacks around the world, and and so, Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, um, longing to draw closer to you, uh, longing uh, for the peace that only you can offer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand who you are more clearly, Uh, Lord, what you've done for us on the cross, Um, and Lord, we ask that you would truly comfort our hearts and our souls deep within and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Uh, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Titan, Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven? Will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to, to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this is for this way was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we study this passage. Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. May your spirit convict us and guide us, Lord, and lead us into truth. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so this passage, verse, uh, verse 20 here, begins, um, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Uh, we see the word then. It sort of indicates uh, a, a time stamp sort of it ties into the context what was going on in the immediate situation. Um, to answer this question, I think we have to go back to chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, remember, chapter 10 was sort of this, um, he called the 12 disciples, named, or he called the 12 disciples, named them as apostles. 
he told them that he was going to send them out. Uh, he'd limited them geographically to the region of Galilee. And, and, and much of chapter 10 was sort of their instructions as they went out um, on this short-term missionary journey. Uh, he listed many of the implications and the things that would happen to them as they went out. Um, uh, but verse 5 here, it says, the 12, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely you give. And so they were to go out. They were limited to the region of Galilee. They were not to go um, by way of the Samaritans um, or by way of the Gentiles. Coming down to chapter 11, verse 1, after his great sort of uh, sermon, his discourse to them, we see when Jesus had finished giving instructions uh, to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so it seems that they all sort of dispatched um, in the region of Galilee. It's, it's believed that they went out two by two. So we have sort of six teams of two guys and Jesus sort of going out in this region, healing, preaching, doing miracles, all sorts of things happened. Um, nothing is really said about how that missionary journey went. Last week we saw John the Baptist. We, we, we learned that he suddenly is um, in prison. He'd been arrested. Uh, while he's arrested as this Old Testament prophet walking onto the pages of the New Testament, explaining, proclaiming that the Messiah had come, and now he finds himself arrested, sort of questioning, this doesn't seem to be how I would anticipate the, uh, that things were supposed to work out. I thought the Messiah was supposed to come and to reign and to rule, and so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, hey, are, are you the expected one? And so Jesus says, listen, Tell them what, what things you're seeing, these, these miracles. Um, they authenticate who I am. And in the midst of all of this, we come to this section, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. This seems to be sort of the, an explanation of how this, these missionary journeys went. It seemed that they went out, they did miracles. Things were happening. They're proclaiming the kingdom of God. And yet these cities, the Galilee region, rejected the Messiah. Um, we see here that Jesus is proclaiming as a judge. We know that he's a savior. We know that he's a healer. We, we, we know all of the great things he's done. But he also is a judge. And here he denounces them and he places this judgment onto these air, these. these these cities that were, they had front row seats to the miracles of his coming that authenticated who he was. And so he begins to denounce them because they didn't respond uh, to, to his message. They didn't repent. Um, we see that there's this hardening of heart. Uh, I believe that as we go through this section, um, we'll see that they were clinging to the religion, the, the teachers, the uh, as the rabbis had placed all of these laws and rules and expectations on how they were to go about living their Jewish lives, when Jesus came on scene, preaching the kingdom, explaining to them, correcting them for how they'd gotten off track, they rejected him. Uh, 
they didn't respond. It wasn't that they didn't uh, see the miracles. They didn't acknowledge Jesus's power. We know that they saw the miracles. They didn't deny the miracles. They, they simply attributed the miracles and the power uh, to Satan, that, that Jesus wasn't representing God, and they rejected him. And there's a stern, stern warning in this passage. It's, a, it's a, 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 this firm warning followed by this warm invitation. And we'll see that how we respond, how we uh, respond to the evidence that God gives to us really does, it matters. Um, we'll see so much so that the, uh, the evidence um, going into, woe to you, Kors, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Um, so here we have two cities. To kind of put this into perspective, let's imagine that Valley Center has a lake to our east. <clears throat> I'm going to sort of pretend, it doesn't really work out perfectly, but I'm just sort of in my mind, I'm imagining that we're Capernaum, which is, uh, the, it, it became Jesus' hometown. It's the city in which he lived. Um, I'm going to call, uh, I'll call Palma Valley is about where, um, Oh, as soon as I, uh, where Corazon would have been. Um, it's a little bit north, a little bit to the east, a few miles back down the road from, from uh, Capernaum. And I'm going to call sort of Rincon, Bethsaida, and the Sea of Galilee is between us. So these are, all, these are two cities that are nearby um, Capernaum, surrounding the lake uh, or the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. They'd gone out, they'd done their ministry. This is where most of Jesus' miracles occurred. Matthew doesn't list all of the miracles. Um, there's all sorts of miracles that, that were happening in this region. John tells us at the end of his uh, gospel that, that if he was to record every one, there, there's not enough pages to record all of the miracles that had happened um, under Jesus' ministry. I would also su- suggest that when Jesus sends out the disciples, we see that they were doing miracles, that they were healing and cleansing and proclaiming. Um, the miracles and the things that they participated in were not their own. They were Christ. They, they were miracles to authenticate the message of who the Messiah was. And so Jesus says, listen, woe to you. Um, this is a uh, this sounds in the English very much like a, a warning, like a condemnation. Um, but it seems that it's more of a, a statement of, um, with a sense of compassion coupled with a warning. Like, woe to you guys. Hey, uh, um, how terrible it will be in that day of judgment for you. He lists two other cities here, uh, Tyre and Sidon. This would be sort of um, to the north, to the west, um, where modern day sort of Lebanon is. Uh, cities up there, these are pagan cities. They're not Jewish cities. They were uh, in the Old Testament. There's uh, probably three or four times where these cities are, are listed um, for, for basically being pagan and that God's judgment's going to come to them. And so here it, Jesus says, woe to you, Kors, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if he's not saying that these miracles happen there, but he says, if these miracles happen in these two pagan cities, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If the things which I did in your midst, your front row that you saw, if I did those in those two cities who are pagan cities who have been condemned over and over and over again in the Old Testament, if I did these things there, they would have been in sackcloth and ashes, mourning their sin, 
grieving over their actions against God. I don't want to get ahead. Most of these, uh, there's a similarity between these two sections. Um, Verse 22, he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Um, the, the first thing is this isn't a, a lack of evidence that Jesus is dealing with. That this, this isn't a, um, that they didn't see enough things. This is a willful that God has revealed himself. He's given them clearly um, evidence of what he expects from them. But they were clinging to their way of life and rejecting uh, this message out of out of their basically um, out of their hearts. They were saying, "No, we don't care about the evidence. Um, we are going to reject you." Um, <clears throat> moving on, he says, "And you, Capernaum, which is basically essentially, a, if you were if the Sea of Galilee was a clock, it would be at the for those of you that know the old clocks with the little hands that spin around." The Sea of Galilee would have been at, at 11 o'clock, which I think is over here for you guys. Um, and, and this was his headquarters. Um, th- this is where, what became home to him, where Peter lived. It, it's fascinating to read these verses and to see the judgment. Um, if you go to Capernaum today, it's, it, it's, there's nothing there. I mean, it's... it's They've excavated the ground and they can see the city. They can tell you where uh, the synagogue was. They can show you where uh, Peter's mother-in-law's home was. Um, But there's virtually nothing there. And at the time that Jesus spoke, this was in many ways a thriving seaport community. It was, I don't want to call it a a metropolis, but they... They had a synagogue. It was, was the hub of sort of industry that uh, as they would harvest fish from the Sea of Galilee, it would be sort of the processing center to send it down to Jerusalem and the other areas. And Jesus turns his attention to this town. And he says, and you, Capernaum, will, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles occurred in Sodom, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, so Jesus brings up this Old Testament city that had quite the reputation, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. He said, all the miracles, everything that I did, if this happened even in Sodom, they would have responded and they would exist as a city today. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What we're seeing here is Jesus came to his own people He gives them evidence as the Messiah. He's fulfilled so much. Everything fit into place. But they were so bound in their traditions and the way they did things that they failed to see the the elephant in the room, that the Messiah was there. It's what John writes about in John 1 verse 11, where he says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So we see the rejection of his people. And he says to them, this speaking of the day of judgment, this is a sobering sort of warning. He says that in the day of judgment, you're all going to be punished. These wicked cities that I mentioned, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. For them, it's going to be better than for you all. You're all going to be in judgment, but you're receiving 
a whole lot more judgment, and it's going to be so much worse for you than for them. And to me, the reason is that they had so much more evidence. There was so much more information that they had to sort of process who the Messiah was. And it makes me think about this. I know when Rick, ever, whenever he teaches a new Bible study, one of the things he, it's, I've been in enough Bible studies with Rick, he makes everybody go around, hey, tell me how many, how many Bibles are in your house? And we start going, and I always go, are you counting electronic versions too? Or are you talking just, are we talking hard copies? I was like, I don't know. Like, like, how many of you have one Bible in your house? Raise your hand. Yeah, just one Bible. Everybody here have one Bible? Okay. Does everybody here have two Bibles? Okay, only put your hand down when we, like, it's like the wedding game. Keep your hands up. Five Bibles. I think I have five Bibles. Ten Bibles? I probably have ten. I'm a pastor. <laughs> so, so everybody in this room has more than one Bible. If we, if we have access to the internet, there's all sorts of Bibles. There's all sorts of teaching. If you have a TV and radio, you're exposed to all sorts of good teaching. There's plenty of bad teaching out there, but you, you have access to good information. I would suggest that we in this age have so much information, so much evidence supporting the claims of Christ and documenting who he is that we're accountable to God and, and so we are going to be without excuse before him. And this is sort of the judgment that they're receiving from Christ. Woe do you wake up, guys. He, he, the, the sin that they were... Um, Right there in verse 20, backing up a little bit, the, the, the cause of all of uh, Jesus' judgment, the, the, the cause of his um, frustration with them was because that they didn't respond to the evidence. They didn't repent. This idea of, a, of a, a change of direction, I believe that the word really begins in the mind. And as the, the mind changes and, and acknowledges that God is right and we are wrong, that the, the, the concept in our mind then affects our outward attitude. It begins in the mind. And they didn't respond. When I read passages like this about repentance, naturally because of my background, I start thinking that, that their sin was debauchery, that drinking, sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, chewing tobacco, and running with girls who do sort of thing, that it was all... Uh, thanks for the laugh. <laughs> We're in Valley Center. It's like... Hey, you're going too far. <laughs> I'm not saying chewing tobacco is a sin. That was just a joke. I'm, I, uh, but, but I naturally sort of go to my, my pagan, worldly, American pre-conversion when I see this. But, but in the context here, I don't think that that's their sin. And, and we'll look at it more. And then going into chapter 12, we're going to see that what Jesus starts battling with um, the next two weeks, we're, we're going to be dealing with how they had interpreted and applied the application of law, the law, specifically the Sabbath rules. And Jesus, according to their traditions and the rules that they had added to the scriptures, Jesus was going to be violating their rules. Now, Jesus can't sin. Jesus knows the Sabbath rules because he is the author of the Sabbath rules. And we're going to start seeing all of the religious people coming after and attacking them uh, based on their religion. And so I think a lot of what today's context 
is dealing with is um, sort of the, the religious fleshly sin where we create rules. If you go to Israel today and, and uh, you find yourself on a Saturday um, entering the wrong elevator as I did one day, <laughs> those of you who are laughing, you know what I'm talking about, you, there's the Sabbath elevator. I just thought it only worked on the Sabbath. I wasn't really paying attention. So the, hey, I walked up, the door just opened right away. Punched the button to go up. And it was like an elf, you know, it's like Christmas time, you know, where, so, so you know when he does all of the, like on the, for the, the three of you who have watched it all. So the elevator stops on every single floor because it would be work to, to, to press the button. And if they press the button, then that's, that's work. So what they've done is they've pre-wired these elevators so that on Saturday they just go all the way up, all the way down. You get in your hotel room. You can set it so that your lights automatically turn on, automatically turn off because to, to, to do it yourself would be to cause a fire. That would be work. Really, when you start leaving evangelical Christianity, so much of religion is about works. When I flew out to Michigan... I really wish I had another day and my buddy had more courage and I had more courage. But there were like a ton of Amish people there. And it was when I flew out on Saturday, we, he, he gave me a quick little tour through the, through, the, through the Amish community. And I'm like, oh man, oh man, there was a bunch of Amish kids like playing volleyball. I'm like, do you think we could run up there and play volleyball? I mean, I know I got a flight. And he's like, dude, you don't have time to go play volleyball. And I was just joking. But I'm like, so what have you learned? Because he showed me his, like, where he used to live, and it was right in the midst of Amish country. He's like, man, these guys, they're all just legalistic. And it's, but they have all their rules, and they bend the rules. They're not allowed to have a phone in their house. So, but outside of their house, they can have power. And so they'll have a phone booth outside that's a wireless telephone. So they set the base outside, but they bring the telephone inside. And so technically, they've, they've, circumvented the rules and he started going through all of their things all of their rules and then how they bend their rules to get around the rules my, my background in catholicism like i love catholics my half my family's catholic so i, I it, it always pays me but but catholicism is built upon rule after rule after rule that if you want to be right with God, then you have to do all of these things to sustain the grace that's available. It's the sacraments. I look at Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these groups. There's all of these works. And the, the, really the greatest works-based of all is Islam is a total works-based religion. Where the, the people in control of all of these religions place all of these requirements on the individuals and they can't keep them, but that, the way they are right with God is to maintain all of these things. And it can be a back-breaking sort of feeling for any of you who have ever experienced the weight of trying to appease religion. And I believe that's in large part the sin that Jesus is addressing in this section. <clears throat> So there's these three cities that he sort of, the three hubs of the cities in the, in the region of Galilee that he did many of his miracles. He, he goes after those cities. He, he says, woe to you. His heart is always repentance, that they would be confronted and that they would adjust 
And in verse 25 and verse 26, we see Jesus uh, shift his attention to the Father. We see a, a short prayer, a short uh, praise to the Father in his frustration. Or I don't know if frustration is the right word. Maybe his uh, seeing how these people had been leading the other people astray. And he says in verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. The word for Father here is Abba. In Israel, you go there. I don't, I don't know about Jewish Hebrew-speaking families today, but you know, you're in a hotel room and you see a little kid going after his dad. They're going, Abba, 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 Abba. It's this intimate term like, like Papa or Daddy, he says, if he speaks warmly of the Father, this intimacy in this section. I praise you, Abba. He says, Lord of the heaven and earth, speaking of his majesty. I praise you, Daddy. I praise you, Papa, creator of the heaven and the earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. I think what he's getting at as he's praising the Father is he's, I, I, I'm praising you, Father, for, for the plan of salvation, really the simplicity of it and the accessibility of it to all people. When he's speaking of infants, I think that he's speaking of his 12 disciples. These were, uh, these were the blue-collar guys that didn't make the cut in the religious establishment. We have a tax collector. We have fishermen. These are guys who were not in the upper echelon. And yet they understood. Um, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, as Paul is addressing uh, the church in this region that had all sorts of problems. And he opens his letter and he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. That, that's sort of a, a thing that stands out to me. When you read uh, Paul's writing, Paul is a forceful writer. But as I look at the, at the accounts in Acts, I don't get the impression um, that Paul was sort of like a big stately guy that was impressive to look at. I don't think that he was a powerful speaker necessarily. And he says, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come with cleverness of speech. It was my content that I was delivering to you. So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I don't think Paul or Jesus is condemning or saying that no wise person has ever come to faith. Or that every um, childlike person comes to faith. I think that he's saying that God desired a plan and his message and his means of salvation is simple. It's, on, it's designed for the lowest common denominator that all people, all individuals have this access to God. You don't need a priest as an as a inner, uh, inner person to help connect you to God. And Jesus is praising the Father for this access, this availability that we all have. 
his, his group of 12 disciples who were really nobodies that he would, he would use as apostles uh, to, to carry on the mission following his death, death burial, and resurrection. In verse 27, an invitation is really where, I was, where I'm hoping to get at. We see the, the, the harsh warning. We see the prayer in the middle. And now we see um, this invitation by Christ. And he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. And so the beginning here, these, the first thing, he says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. So that we see this, this intimacy. Uh, in, our, in our context, I think it's hard to understand what's, what's happening. While in Jesus' context in his time, they would clearly understand what he's saying. He's saying that he is one with God. Um, this, this all things have been handed to me by the Father, that, that he is deity, that he has all authority, all power over all things, that it's been given to him by his Father. Then he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows, only the Father truly knows Christ. And then he also turns it and says, no one knows the Father except for the Son. I think of John 14, 6 at the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's an exclusivity of Christ that he is the only way to access the Father. It comes from Christ. And then there's this last phrase that I think if we start thinking about it, we, we can get our minds all wrapped up in, into knots we can start taking sides theologically over things and start arguing about it because our brain uh, can't handle necessarily both sides of the same coin. Because in the last phrase, he says, and anyone, um, well, let me read the whole thing. Anyone, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone, so there's others who can know the Father, and anyone to whom the Son wills, to reveal him. So he says there are some people who can know the father through the son. And the son is the one who actually reveals this information to those who actually know God. Now, there's some tension here. <clears throat> uh, uh, there's some tension. And when a person comes to Christ, when we come to this relationship with the father... The sort of the two sides are our free will and the hand of God, the sovereignty of God playing all things together. I think that both sides are true, but our minds have a very difficult time reconciling the, 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 the will of man, the, the free choice the, the, that the evidence has been presented to us. As it says in Ephesians 1.13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, he says to those that are Christians, at one point you heard the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the grave. That's the gospel. He says, at one point you heard this, and he goes on to say, 
having also believed. And so then from a human perspective, I know that in my life, I heard the gospel over and over and over again. And I rejected, I rejected, I rejected, I rejected through a series of things. Eventually, I, I, I gave in. I realized that my only hope was Christ. And so I believed. And the scripture says, Paul writes, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so at that moment, when I decided, when I gave my life, when I surrendered to him, at that moment, I'm told that the spirit sealed me. Um, A down payment was placed on my life until the day of redemption. It's this promise of God that I am safe and secure, not based on my works, based on Christ's works. So that's one side of the coin. But now Jesus here says, nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. So on one side of the coin, I think from my perspective, my human little gunner world, as I'm navigating this life, it sure feels like my decision to become a Christian had everything to do with my mind, my choice, my weighing the facts, and then deciding. Then I start reading the scriptures. Then there's all of these other scriptures that say that God's hand was meddling all up in my business, <laughs> like leading me to that place. Um, I like, it's a struggle. Like there's like, what's happening on stage is my life. What's going on behind the set and the scenes. I have like, God's clearly working there. And somehow these two work together. Um, Acts 17, if you'll turn there, it's not in my notes or it's on the board. So Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 26 is really one of these verses that has helped me sort of solve a lot of my struggles, um, dealing with, uh, I don't want to say anger, confusion as a young man being raised in an abusive home by a mother who was an alcoholic but was also a staunch um, Catholic. Um, the, the same lady who would tell me about God was also beating me to a pulp. And then then kind of navigating my life, I think it's... I kind of had some qualms against God. Like I had some, like, because my understanding of who God was based on the person who was conveying them to me, I kind of wasn't really happy with the cards that I was dealt early on. But then as I became a Christian and and my life, I, I started really changing from the inside to where instead of like anger and wrath that was in me, that I had just sincere gratitude, thankfulness, that those were the quote-unquote cards that I was dealt. Like, I'm super thankful uh, for the way in which my life has been orchestrated by God because my passion for Him, I don't know that it would have come about had I been raised in a good Christian home. And I, that sounds terrible coming out of the pastor's mouth, but that's like... Uh, like and so how I've come to acknowledge this, in, in Acts chapter 17... Uh, Paul is in Athens. He's, he's addressing all of the, the great thinkers of the day, the philosophers. Uh, he's been asked to address them. 
And as he's going through the town, he notices all of the many, many gods that are labeled. And he sees the one God that's labeled to the unknown God. Just in case we missed one, we don't want to upset the one we didn't miss. And so he just said, hey, I want to tell you guys about this unknown God. I noticed that there's this unknown God. That's the one I want to tell you about. And so in verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples uh, made, by, uh, made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he starts with Adam and Eve, and he says every human being, I almost said superhuman being, uh, uh, every human that came as a descendant of Adam and Eve, which includes us, that where they've been placed in, in time and the geographical boundaries of the world, it wasn't by accident. And so I read this verse and I think to myself, well, my dad always told me I was the best accident he ever made. It's true. <laughs> this is Gunner's worldview. <laughs> I knew I was an accident from very early on. But the scriptures tell me that while I was a surprise to my dad, I was not a surprise to God. And the fact that I was born September 9th, 1974 in Carmel, California, to the, this situation, the geographical boundaries, this physical location, the, all of the things that happened to me, they were done by the hand of God. And now look at verse 27. This is, this is the, the key to all of this. That, you could put so that, the reason that each of you that you were born when you were born, geographically where you're born, the limitations that you've had on your life or the blessings that you've had on your life, the things that have come your way, that you or they, that you would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him. And this word for grope is, describes a blind person using their hands. There used to be a girl... Um, that would come clean with a group and she was blind. And, and I would always grab her hand and give her permission to like fill my face. And, and it was the most amazing thing for me to watch her reaction, feeling my face. You would have thought she would like was introduced to Brad Pitt every single week. It like really made you feel good. She was like, Oh, this is awesome. But that's the picture that, that all of these circumstances, that the circumstances which you've been given that God has placed you there so that you might desire to seek him, that you would actively be groping for him, seeking to find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Okay, going back to Matthew. And so, so how this all sort of fits, and I can't say that I've absolutely, like I'm not, my understanding which doesn't mean a whole lot, but my dealing with the sort of this coin that I have free will, I have choice. And, and if a person hasn't come to the place where they've acknowledged, received Christ as Savior, well, then you're not a Christian. 
Like on the, the hyper side of Calvinism would say, well, we don't even need to share the gospel because the Savior already chosen. It's already worked out. Well, that's not how God like set it up. So from my perspective, I know that evidence has been placed before me from general revelation that I could look out in the sky and the stars and, and look up at Palomar Mountain when there's snow up there and go to the ocean and see the waves. That when I look at general revelation, it's like, God, there's got to be a creator behind this. And then the, the scripture tells us that then from that, or it doesn't tell us, like, but we see specific revelation that I believe that if we respond to general revelation that God is obligation based on his character then to get specific revelation about who Christ is, that we come to the place where we see the gospel and that we respond and we're saved. Now, Acts tells me that as, as I'm sort of navigating my life in this way, that what I see in Acts chapter 17 is that all of the circumstances, both good and bad in my past, leading up to that place of salvation, that God in his sovereignty has so stacked the deck for me, this is my phrase today, that I'm in my like sweet spot to respond to the gospel. So that if I was raised in a Christian home, I believe because of my past, well, I probably, maybe I wouldn't have responded with how I responded. So God allowed all of these things to happen in my life so that I would find myself in the place to where I would be posed most um, to respond to him. So Acts 17 just taught me that I'm a really hard-headed person, and I needed all of that in order to respond to him. Um, a more intellectual guy than myself is D.A. Carson. And concerning this passage, and I'm quoting from D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, is a, he's, he's, he's a leading scholar today of, of theology, very well-respected man, probably falls more into the... Um, uh, falls more into the the Reformed, the Calvinist side of things. And this is what he says. Um, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human, human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. The general invitation is to all people. And if they ignore the call, the onus is always on them. God is never responsible for someone's unbelief. I thought that was really good. Now back to this passage to sort of, to, to sort of back up a little bit. When we look at verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. Um, I think that the bigger picture, that the point of all of this, is that Jesus is establishing his authority behind what he's about to say. He's about to give this great invitation, this huge invitation. But see, if I give this invitation to you all just for me, like, hey, um, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Gunner can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. Your spouse cannot do that for you. Your parents cannot do that for you. Your job cannot do that for you. 
And so Jesus, before he makes this statement, he is showing them who he is, that he has this authority. He is the creator and sustainer to give this invitation. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said the man who said this was either insane, a deceiver, or precisely who he claimed to be. We can't say Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely did. This, this here is, is overwhelming, that he is saying that he absolutely is God, that he is one with the Father. There is no, everyone else is excluded from this picture. So he's either a crazy man. What are the options here? Uh, he's either insane, a crazy man. He's just a big fat liar, and he's trying to deceive everybody. Or he's actually who he is. And I believe that the evidence supports through the whole picture that Christ is who he said he was. And so when he makes this invitation that we're about to look at, he has all authority, all power, every right to make this claim. And he can offer what no one or anything else, no religion can offer. And he says, come to me. I just want to stop there. It's not... Come to this church. Come to see this pastor. Come hear this worship. Come to these works. He says, come to me. All, everyone. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The, the rest of these three, or 28, 29, 30, three verses that we end with, all of them point to Christ himself. He's telling people to come to him, come to him, come to him. Weary and heavy laden. I, I think of when I see the words heavy laden, I always think back to my, back to my, my SEAL days. Uh, one of the biggest operations that I was during my time that we were responsible for is basically taking down oil smugglers coming out of a river uh, between Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, and so the training, we, we, always, like, we always did this training for how to take down any kind of ship, I mean, but we would train on these huge tankers coming into San Diego where we'd have like a 50-foot caving ladder. It's a little ladder like this. We would basically pull up next to a ship doing like 15 knots, which is pretty fast at 2 in the morning, and you'd have to climb up the ladder, and then we'd all take over the ship. And, and, uh, but then you get to the Middle East, and oil smugglers, they're smuggling a commodity, oil. And so they really have to have a lot of supplies in order to come out. So we get to the Middle East. We're like prepared to take down the biggest ships in the world. But the, the oil ships were so heavy laden, that's the term we learned, that they are basically above the water. I mean, they are, they are like we would pull up next to them, and it was literally like we just had to hop over, kind of make sure that the boat was there. We'd run up and take it over. And I remember this one guy, between my broken Arabic and his really bad English, uh, my job was always to go to the bridge, take control of the ship, steer the ship. I learned I'm a horrible ship driver. And so I just commanded the guy that's used to doing it, give him all the data, like, hey, you go to this bearing at this speed. And we must have been doing like 15 knots. I said, you need to go to this bearing, take it down to five knots. And he smiled at me. He just started kind of laughing. I'm like, why you laugh at me, my friend? <laughs> that's my Arabic. <laughs> my friend, why you, why you smile? He said, first you come to my ship and you tell me shokran, which means thank you. Like I was very polite in my having a gun in their face. And, uh, and he said, listen, if I take this ship down to five knots, we're going to sink. 
And I'm like, you hold it at 12 knots. We'll just keep holding this pace. And the reason I bring up this story is this ship that was so heavily laden with oil it could barely stay afloat. I think there are so many of us that go through this life, and especially in the context of like religion, that we, we, we pile in all of these works, that if we want relationship with God, if we want Him to be happy with us, that means we have to do our morning devos. We have to read the Bible through in a year, every single year. We have to go to church every week, and these things are all could be good things. We have to not swear. We have to uh, get more involved. We have to stop swearing. Did I say swearing twice? I, I, I like, we have to do all of these things. And if we don't do all of these things, then God is not happy with us. And speaking to this religious crowd, the, the Old Testament in itself has 613 commands in its own right. Now, some of these things are like, if you're going to combat, you have to wear boots. Like there's some stuff that doesn't, like there wasn't 613 commandments. But now the teachers during that day, they would take the 613. For everyone, there'd probably be a hundred more rules. And so the people are going through all of their rules and they're doing all of their things. And they're just heavy laden because they just can't do enough to make God happy. But if they don't make God happy, then they're in trouble. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's beautiful. And outside of rest, I think of like, I, I have like the gift of worry and it will strike me in weird ways. Like last night, I'm sort of like tossing and turning with anxiety. And like, it's like, I'm looking at the clock. It's like, oh man, it's midnight. I need to go to sleep. And when you're trying to go to sleep, it's all the much harder to like go to the sleep. It's like, just go to sleep already. What do they say about count sheep? Because it's not working. And then I'm sitting there going, come to me who are weary and heavy. I'm like, oh, yeah. Lord, I'm really stressing out about something. I have no idea what I'm stressing out about. Um, and I kind of went to sleep. Like, I, like he calls us. He wants us to have rest. It really is a beautiful picture of God. That God wants us to rest in him. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest from your, for your souls. So the question is like, well, what's a yoke? Well, this explains the picture that's been behind me for the whole, like, why? Gunner's losing his mind. There's two cows up there, but those are oxen. I can't tell you the difference between cow and I. I think they're bigger. So the thing that connects them is a yoke. So this phrase yoke, I saw the bullets and I saw the mountain. I'm like, what does it say? This is like, totally has nothing to do with the sermon, but I saw it. I just want to, because maybe there's some other people that are confused out there. I saw his yoke is easy. And I think, no, no, Melanie, I like my eggs medium. And she's like, Gunnar, you spell, you spell yoke, Y-O-L-K. And I'm like, okay, I see where you're going. You read the passage. So it's not talking about the eggs. It's talking about his yoke, the, the thing that connects. So oxen, but it also, as history unfolded, it went from oxen to humans. So that slaves were trotted around by a yoke where they had it around their neck. I didn't really want to put a picture of it because it was, I didn't feel like it was the most appropriate thing. But if you'll turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is he's instructing young Timothy as he's training this young pastor for how the gospel works itself out in various um, 
various ways of people's lives. One of them was to the slave. Now, the Bible never condones slavery. The Bible's simply acknowledging the life circumstances that existed during that time. And he says to Timothy, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And so in that passage, we see that this yoke uh, could mean literally a slave person. And Paul is uh, giving words of the scripture, like if you're in this position, Maybe it's today, it's like you could say you're in a workplace that you're not happy with. And, and it's the yoke, the bondage, how your, your behavior, your attitude, your posture in this environment, how you act as a believer reflects on God. Now, now moving on, the term yoke, which I think is what Jesus is getting to, is yoke also deals with the teaching or the interpretation, the application from a rabbi. So a rabbi who was teaching the Old Testament, who had his interpretation of how the scripture was to be applied, his teaching was referred to as his yoke. Not the egg, but the yoke, his teaching. Um, In Acts 15, if you'll turn with me to Acts 15.10, Paul is confronting The religious leaders, remember, Paul himself was a rabbi. Paul himself was a great persecutor of the church. Then he came to Christ, or Christ came to him. And in Acts 15, verse 10, we read this as Paul's addressing them. He says, now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So as he's confronting the religious leaders, he says, why do you place this yoke upon them, this teaching upon him? They can't keep it. You can't keep it. Our fathers can't keep it. This religion has done nothing but totally oppress them and break them down. In Galatians 5.1, to the early church, if you'll turn to Galatians 5.1, the early church that had been set free by the gospel, they'd come out of The religion of this works, they've been set free. The Judaizers came back around and started uh, pitching the law to them and telling them that they were not free by grace. That if they wanted to remain uh, in Christ, if they wanted to remain in a position where they're not at war with God, that they needed to also take on the teaching And Paul says to them, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So these people that have been set free by the gospel, by the grace of God, had now placed a yoke back on their neck and they'd put, put themselves back into slavery of religion. And so with this context, let's look at Jesus's words here. Uh, Back to Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my teaching. Uh, It makes me, it it strikes me that all of the um, 
the, the writers of the New Testament, they always introduce themselves. Follow Paul, Paul describes himself as a bond servant of Christ. That he's taken the yoke of Christ, he's placed it on his neck, he has subjected himself to his authority. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I love this, that there's this picture of learning. Not that I've ever done this, but in my study, if you want to train a young ox how to, to learn the ropes of the trade, what they would do is they would take an old mature ox and they would place it on one side and the younger ox would go next to the old ox. He would have the yoke upon him. He would do none of the work. The old ox, the strong ox would do all of the work, carry all of the load. But the young ox is just with there cruising, learning the ropes, learning the, the ropes of the trade, I guess is what I was about to say. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is a beautiful picture of Christ over in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Uh, this, this, this passage that's so known as a, a Christological passage of Christ, meaning it shows us who Christ is. Um, I always get the call, hey, Gunner, where's, where's that passage? It says, one day every knee will bow and confess him as Lord. Where is that? And it's this passage. But the whole context of this passage, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it has, says, have this attitude in yourselves. Okay, what attitude are we to have? As Paul writes to this church, uh, what attitude are they to take on? Which was also in Christ Jesus, although, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. So this whole passage, it says, Jesus was God. He is God. And even though he's God, even though he's worthy of the worship of the entire world and all, like all creation, all people, even so he humbled himself and he became a man, and not just a man, but a poor man. And then he went to the most embarrassing, shameful way that, a, that anyone could go to death. He died naked on a cross. And Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves of humility. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, the second time here, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We already know that Jesus had hard teachings. We went through the whole Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as he sort of rectifies the heart of the old testament he certainly did not lower the standard to say you've heard it said don't commit adultery but i say to you if you look at a woman with lust you've committed adultery in your heart does that sound easier or harder that sounds a whole lot harder so we know that he has hard teaching but the heart of his teaching is to come to him to show us that we are unable to maintain the standard which only he can. And Jesus is saying, come to me, I will take care of it. Come to me, I will take 
the yoke from you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't mean that the yoke is easy or the burden is light. That just means that he's the other half of the yoke and he is doing the weight for us. I want to end with a quote from James Boyce. He writes, Jesus is the only rest you or any other poor, struggling, burdened soul will ever need. You may be laboring onward like pilgrim from Pilgrim's Progress, distressed at the burden on your back. No earthly master will lift that burden. Many will add to it. The majority will ignore it because they have burdens of their own. You need Jesus. He is the only one who can actually help you. Why not turn to him right now? And Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word. Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord, as we look at the stern warning of um, seeing the evidence, um, seeing the, 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 the miracles, the claims, the documentation, the evidence for who Christ is and who you are are simply overwhelming. We can look upon creation and it would be foolishness to say that there's not a creator behind all that is seen. Father, for those in this room who maybe have not come to understand who you are and have not placed their faith in you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see your grace, that you're calling people to you, not to works. And Father, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would free us from the temptation to fall back into works, Lord, to fall back under the yoke of trying to earn our favor with you. Father, I pray that you would help us um, to experience this rest in you. Lord, this world is such a, a... a harsh place, and it's so easy to get weary and heavy laden. And so, Father, we come before you and we lay our burdens before you. And we ask you for help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.